0: All right, grab your Bibles this morning and turn once more to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse number 10, and our young ones can head out there at this time. Some of them are extremely happy about leaving. (laughs) So, all right. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against this spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This morning, I want to begin just by reminding us once again of kind of going over this, the the main import or the, the main point of this passage is to remind us that if you are a Christian this morning, that is you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've given your life to follow him, then you are at war. You're at war. The reality is that sometimes in our modern context, uh, Christianity gets perverted or or, or the nature of the Christian life gets distorted so that the way that it's presented is that if you will come to Christ, if you will follow Christ, you'll live a life of serenity. You will live a life of ease, that, that he will make everything go well in your life. You won't have problems, just come to Jesus. He'll fix your marriage, uh, he, he'll make you healthy and happy and wise and, and all of those things. But the reality is that that is definitively not what the Bible teaches about the Christian life. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be at war. I heard recently a quote from C.S. Lewis that uh, I, I'm gonna boil it down into my words. And he basically says this, what part of take up your cross and follow me did you not understand? C.S. Lewis said it a little more eloquently than that, but that's basically the, the message he's getting that. When, when Jesus called you to be a follower, he called you to come and take up a cross. That's a life of suffering. And so certainly the Bible does promise to give us peace, okay? peace in the storm though right because uh it doesn't mean that there's going to be an absence of problems it just means that in the midst of all of those trials in the midst of all of that suffering that the lord will be with you and will comfort you and will be peace jesus told his disciples in john 16 33 i've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation so there's this dual thing that's going on right In the world, as long as you're in the world, you're going to have tribulation. But in me, you will have peace. So you have tribulation and you have peace that are happening at the same time. So we're at war. We are at war. The Christian life is a battle. It's a war. And you have an enemy. And I think so many of us don't consider that. We don't think that we really have... An enemy we live our life as if it's just us and the people around us but the Bible clearly teaches that we have a spiritual enemy we see this in in verse 12 it's a spiritual enemy it is Satan and his demons we we don't wrestle against flesh and blood our, our battle is not against individuals so to speak but but it is against uh, the spiritual forces that are all around us this means then that our fight In the christian life is not primarily a political one we we don't win this fight by getting the right people elected that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about uh who is elected uh but but it just simply is to say that that's not how we win this victory and so when we look at history and we think of things like the crusades in in old times uh, what was that that was an attempt to make the christian life all about a flesh and blood kind of battle, but Jesus said that's not what we're in. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. and today we don't have the Crusades, but we, but we have people who are overzealous in terms of political things. We ought to care about uh, politics. We ought to care about who our leaders are. We ought to stand for righteousness, absolutely, but that's not the primary battle we're in, right? That's not how we win. What does Satan do? He's our enemy, We have a spiritual enemy. Well satan keeps unbelievers in darkness this is one of the primary things that he does second corinthians 4 4. he says paul says that the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so this is one of the things that Satan is doing is keeping people in darkness. Do you remember the parable that Jesus uh, gave of the, the sower and the seed? The, the sower is one who's preaching the word of God. The word of God is distributed and what happens? For some of it, birds swoop down and, and before the, the seed has opportunity to germinate and take root in the soil, the birds of the air come and they eat the seed. And Jesus, when he's explaining that parable, says that that is Satan. He says, Satan, Immediately comes and takes the takes away the word that is sown in them. So the work of Satan, first of all, is to keep unbelievers in darkness, and he orchestrates unbelievers. We saw in Ephesians chapter two uh, that uh, that we no longer we who are Christians have been delivered from this. But this is the way that the world is described as those who are following the prince, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience so so satan is orchestrating unbelievers he's keeping them in darkness and he's orchestrating them for his own ends and purposes But not only is Satan fighting uh, uh, in terms of keeping unbelievers in darkness, but he's also fighting against us, against the people of God. Satan hates God and he opposes all that God is doing and all who are aligned with God. So if you think like, hey, once I'm delivered from the power of Satan and the darkness that he held over me for those years, now I've been saved. uh, So he's not going to oppose me. No, he's going to continue to fight against you. And we see this all through the Bible. God's people are always opposed by Satan. It begins in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. We see it with Job and and throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see that Satan comes to tempt Christ. We see that uh, the apostle Peter, uh, Jesus says to him, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat. And and that's exactly what Satan does. But Jesus said, I pray that you might be uh, restored And then 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes about the work of Satan. He says to Christians, not to unbelievers, but to Christians, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The apostle Peter wrote that from a very dark and hard experience. He knew what it was like to be in the jaws of that lion. He knows uh, the attack of Satan. And so he warns us. All the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see uh, uh, John writing to the church at Smyrna. And he talks to them about some suffering that is going to come. He says in in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And you're going to suffer. He reminds them, be faithful till the end, though. Be faithful till the end. Now, Satan was not coming himself physically to throw them into prison, but Satan, again, was orchestrating the work of unbelievers in in opposing the people of God. He's saying you're about to go into prison, and ultimately when you trace that back, that is the work of Satan. So all the way from the Garden of Eden, all the way to the book of Revelation, we see Satan opposing the people of God. So guess what? If you're a Christian, Satan is going to oppose you. He's going to work against you. You need to be aware of that. We need to understand that this fight that we're in is a sophisticated battle. Satan is like a good general. Our military has gotten very good at things like targeted strikes. Right? We don't just carpet bomb anymore, at least typically, right? where you just go in and bomb massive areas. No, the, the generals have intelligence, and they know where to strike precisely. This is where this al-Qaeda leader is going to be, or this is where Saddam Hussein's going to. we think he's going to be. So we strike right in that area, and that's the way that Satan works against us. In verse 11, we see that he has schemes Satan has schemes, he has plans, crafty plans that that are designed for you because he knows you, he knows what your weaknesses are, he knows precisely where you struggle, and he he has targeted strikes like any good general. And so 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says we should not be ignorant of his designs. Are you ignorant of the designs of Satan in your life? Do you know where Satan is going to attack you? Can can you see it? I I, I think I've experienced enough of the Christian life now that I can see Like Sometimes we talk about seeing the hand of God at work in our life. There are things that God does that you're just like, wow, God did that. That was We say that was a God thing. I I don't know that that's my favorite expression, but I know what people are saying. God did that. God clearly worked in that way. But listen, this morning, you need to recognize sometimes we can see the hand of Satan working in our life. You need to be aware of that. You need to know where your weaknesses are, and you need to know where he's going to tempt you. And you ought to be able to see sometimes that this was the work of Satan in my life this was a temptation that was clearly brought in to destroy me we need to be aware of what he's doing and not ignorant of his designs we also need to see that this is a messy struggle he says we do not wrestle that's a word for hand-to-hand face-to-face combat I mean down in the mud and the dirt uh kind of gladiator style this this is not a pretty war It's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard and you need to be prepared for the level of difficulty with which Satan is going to attack you, okay? It's not a clean, neat little war where you're a sniper away from the the conflict. You are hand-to-hand kind of combat. I like... uh, Let me just move on. started to say something funny, but let me just move on. Uh, We need to stand in God's strength we need to stand in God's strength in this that that's what the command is here that's what the what he keeps telling us stand 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 repeatedly in this section he tells us to stand but we don't stand in our own strength if we stand in our own strength uh, we're going to be like the Iraqis when, when uh, the U.S. and the coalition forces uh, brought the shock and awe against them. Like we're going to be overwhelmed by uh, the power of Satan, the working of Satan, if we are standing in our own strength. But do you see what he says here? Finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. It's in his strength, the strength of his might that we stand against Satan. So we need to stand in God's strength. And when we do that, what we recognize and what we realize is that actually Satan is a defeated enemy. Satan is already a defeated enemy. We see this in the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Satan was defeated. And so we are fighting a battle, a war that's already been won in some sense. And in the Gospels, when we see Jesus, one of the things that they're amazed about Jesus is that even the demons obey him. Jesus has authority over the demons and Jesus exercises this authority for his followers. He says in Luke 18 when or Luke 10, when he sends out the 72, he says, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus says when he's commanding us to go out and make disciples, the first thing that he says is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, I want you to know the power of God. It's the power of God that raised Christ up and that seated him above all rule and authority and dominion and power. The very same words that we see here, The, the things that we're fighting against, Jesus has been victoriously seated above them. So we don't fight this battle in our strength. We fight it in the strength of Christ and he has all authority. In Revelation chapter 12, we get a picture of of this victory that happens. And I think this is a reference. Revelation 12, 7 to 12, I would encourage you to read that later. We're not going to read it right now. Uh, But I think we have a picture of the ministry of Christ in that, the birth of Christ from the woman and and the victory that is given. And this, this is what is said here. The deceiver of the world was thrown down. To the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is already a defeated enemy if we stand in the power and in the strength of the Lord we have nothing to fear. If we're seeking to fight him in our own strength or if we're ignorant of the fact that we're even in a battle we will be destroyed but in the strength of god we will be victorious satan work satan's work of temptation and accusation we've seen this are all founded upon deception so let's just be aware how does satan work how does satan work well there's temptation and accusation i actually have a slide. If you want to go to that next one, there we have the strategy of Satan. This is how Satan works generally. There are particulars. Everything is founded upon a lie. There's no truth in Satan, Jesus says. He's the father of lies, and there is no truth in him. So anything he does, guess what, is based on deception. Everything that he does in your life. But then there are two ways that he uses that deception primarily. There's temptation. That can take a thousand different forms. It's based on a lie, but he's tempting you to disobey God. And then there's accusation, which is him coming against you and and accusing you uh, in in some way. Temptation and accusation. He's called the accuser of the brothers. Let's shift gears this morning then because I want to get into this. What is it about this? Uh, armor here in, in particular uh, we're, we're looking at the armor that, that God gives to his people and and in fact what we need to notice here is that when he says stand in the strength of the Lord the armor is God's strength the armor is God's provision of strength for us so as we take the armor as we put on the armor we are obeying this command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might he, he's given you what you need to be strong and that is this armor we, we've looked uh, already at some of this, but this morning we want to focus on this breastplate of righteousness. This is the picture of a Roman centurion, and and I'm sure you all have seen pictures of that before. But they would wear breastplates. This, this was to protect all of their vital organs. Right, they're shooting. They have arrows and swords and these kinds of weapons. And so so some kind of plate over your your your, your uh, main area here. I'm losing words there. I'm uh, trying to come up with a better word than that. But, but over your vital organs uh, is important. Like You need to protect your heart and your lungs. You need to protect your, your midsection here from the attacks uh, of the enemy. And Paul picks up on that. And he says, we need then to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, one of Satan's fundamental accusations Uh, against us is to call into question the love of God between uh, God and to call into question the love between God and his people and that's precisely I think where this breastplate of righteousness comes in let's let's just talk through this for a minute how does Satan accuse us how what does Satan come against us with well well he calls into question God's love for us he calls into question our standing with God. That's the nature of, our, of the accusations that come. And in fact, we see this all throughout the, the Bible. We see it in, in the book of Job, where, where really Satan comes before God and accuses Job and says, listen, Job, yeah, he's faithful. Job obeys you, sure. But the reason he obeys you is not really because he loves or fears you. The reason he obeys you is because you've just lavished him with all kinds of blessing. You've made him healthy and rich. But the moment you take those things away, the the moment you allow those blessings to be removed, he says in Job 1.11, he will curse you to your face. Job does not really love you. We see this kind of accusation come as well in, in Jesus, in the temptation. Do you remember the different temptations that, that Satan comes to Christ with? And one of them, he takes him up on the temple, right? He takes him up to the top of the temple and he says, look, jump off. If you jump off, the word of God says that he will give his angels charge of you, that his angels will protect you. If you jump off of this, he will save your life if he truly loves you. If God really cares for you, as he says he does, if the father really is concerned for you, then he will prove his love by protecting you when you jump off of this temple. Now, why would that be a particular temptation for Christ? Well, Christ knew that the purpose of his life, his ultimate destiny in this life was to go to the cross. So in the back of his mind, he's got to be thinking, is is God going to come through? Is the Father going to care for me? Is the Father going to deliver me? Is, Is the Father going to do what he has said he's going to do? Does he really love me as he says he does? And Satan's saying, hey, don't wait for the crucifixion. Don't wait till the end. If you've got that doubt, if you've got that question whether the Father really loves and cares for you, just prove it right now. Let's not wait till the end. Let's just get get on with the show already. Let's see if God really loves you. Do you see that in in one with Job, he's he's saying Job doesn't really love you. And in the other with Christ, he's saying, hey, the father doesn't really love you. Or, Or at least you need to put it to the test. And Jesus says to him, he quotes from scripture. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why does he quote that? Because that's precisely what Satan was doing. Put God to the test. Put his love for you to the test and prove it. Prove if he loves you. And I think that's the way that Satan works in our lives as well. Satan can tempt us, can't he? He he can accuse us and he can bring those accusations say, you know, you, you really are not loved by God. Think about all that you've done. Could God really love you? could god care do you remember all the things that you've done do you remember all the ways that you've fallen short could god truly love you you know one of the greatest things that satan does in his work of deception is that he doesn't really have to get you to believe a lie all he's got to do is get you to doubt the truth and and that's the way that satan works for us so often just, just get you to doubt it enough. Does God truly love you? Could he really love you? Well, how does this breastplate of righteousness protect us from this doubt? And it, I think it does it this way. That the, God's gift of righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, we're talking about God's gift of righteousness forever secures our position before God. The fact that we are given righteousness as a gift means that we are forever his children we are forever loved we are forever forgiven we are forever accepted in him you see satan's going to come to you and he's going to accuse you because of your sin because of your shortcomings because of the ways that you have failed perhaps god doesn't love you there's no way that god could love you but god's gift of righteousness to us tells us i am forgiven I am accepted. I am his child. I am forever loved by God. There's no doubt about it because it's not based on my righteousness, but it is based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, I want to um, start to say unpack that a little bit, uh, but Bonnie was making fun of me for saying that the other day, so I'm going to try not to say that, but I'm going to try to explain this a little bit, all right? Uh, Righteousness is a necessary foundation for our relationship with God. Psalm 24.3 says this, Who shall ascend to the Lord? In other words, who's going to enter into the presence of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He, the answer is this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So the psalmist says this, who can go into God's presence? Can you go into the presence of God? Do you have acceptance with God? Are you able to enter into his presence? The question is answered in this, do you have clean hands? Our hands are what we, what we do things with. Like it's our action. Have your actions always been pure? He says, do you have a pure heart? Now that takes it back a level, right? It's one thing to say, well, I've done what's right, but it's another thing to say, in my heart, my heart is, is always pure. Have you ever lifted your soul to what is false? Uh, In other words, have you ever lived for anything other than God? Have you ever made an idol out of everything and dedicated your life and your soul and your being to that thing? I think all of us have done those things. Uh, None of us have clean hands. None of us has a a perfectly pure heart. All of us have lived for things other than God and put other things in front of Him. That's why the Bible comes to us in Romans 3.9. Paul says this what then are the Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one none is righteous nobody has clean hands nobody has a pure heart nobody has always lived fully for the Lord and when you, when you stop and you think about not, not only that, but you begin to dig in and consider it again based on, on God's standard. I was watching a video this week, a discussion between uh, a, a Christian pastor and, and a Jewish uh, man, and, and both of them good people. But, but the Jewish man said this. Uh, he, he said, basically, I believe that God wants you to be a good person. And as long as you're a good person, as long as you really, what it all boils down to, how do you treat other people? And if you treat other people well, then, then God is good with you, right? You're accepted by God. You're, you're okay. But there's two problems with that. One is that that's only a human standard of goodness. Uh, and it simply compares us to each other. It, it's our standard. It's not God's standard. And, and sometimes when we compare ourselves to each other, we can say, you know, Jared's a pretty good guy. Yeah, compared to the rest of y'all, he's, he's doing pretty good. Compared to, to some of the worst in, in humanity, Jared's doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty well, right? Uh, but, but we're just comparing ourselves to each other. I'll give you an illustration. You just imagine it's been raining quite a bit. And I know this would be hard for you to imagine, but some of these young boys going out after church and getting into the mud and just rolling around, I don't think that's ever happened before, right? Uh, I, I think it actually has. But, but imagine they come in, and they're just covered in mud. And uh, Evan says, well, I mean, I'm muddy. I've got mud all over me, but, you know, there's some spots that aren't muddy. Look at Brennan. He's, he's even worse than I am. I'm actually doing pretty well. I'm, I'm not all that dirty. Well, you see, when he's comparing to each other, maybe you are. Maybe there are a few, a few more spots that aren't covered by mud than, than somebody else okay but the reality is compared to the standard of somebody who's dressed in their sunday best and who doesn't have a speck of dirt on them you are filthy dirty you're muddy and that's what we do we compare ourselves to one another we say well i'm pretty good right i i I haven't done that many bad things just look at hitler look at some of the awful people murderers and rapists and these i'm actually i treat people pretty well But you see we're comparing with other people who are filthy dirty we've got to compare ourselves against the standard of god's righteousness my dad always used the example of you know being up on a stage like this and he would he knew what what's the closest star to to our planet i I don't even know but but he would say that and he'd say well you know i'm closer to that star than you because i'm up here and you're down there right in reality, the fact that I'm maybe a couple feet a little bit higher, am I, in reality, am I really even close to that star? No, I'm still hundreds of light years away from that star, okay? And that's the way we are when we compare ourselves to God's righteousness. All of us have fallen completely short of it. We are not righteous. But the other problem is, not only do we compare based on a human standard, but, but our righteousness, we fail to consider the heart, The Bible teaches that the true indicator of who you are is your heart. Listen to this one one little phrase, and this this should just get rid of any doubt about whether you're righteous or not. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What you think in your heart is who you are. You say, well, I haven't done this. I haven't done those really bad things. What's going on in your heart? What are the things that you think about what is the lust that you have in your heart what about that anger in your heart or that pride or that envy or that jealousy or all of those things that you feel welling up in your heart and yeah sure maybe you're able to suppress them but but maybe it's not really because you're righteous maybe it's just because there are other factors to consider right? Uh, maybe, maybe that lust in your heart that you haven't acted on, maybe the reason you haven't acted on it is just because you haven't had the opportunity yet. The, the right situation has not presented itself. Or maybe there's other factors. Maybe you really care about your family. And so if given the chance and you think you could get away with it, may, maybe you would act on that, but, but maybe you don't want to hurt your family. Or what about that envy or the jealousy or the pride or the covetousness or the anger? Maybe you're just not acting on those things because of other considerations. But as a person thinks in his or her heart, so is he. So we are not righteous. So what do we do when Satan accuses us? When he reminds us of what is really going on in our heart? God could not love a person who would think about something. God would never love a person who would look at something like that on the Internet. God would never love somebody that could have such a hateful heart. God could not love you. When he reminds you of your past and you begin to replay it in your mind, what do you do? Well, this morning what you need to do is put on the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. I want to do something in, in the time that we have remaining here. And that, that is, I want to just help you understand what we're talking about when we talk about the gift of God's righteousness, the gift of righteousness. There's two ways that we can think about righteousness. One, righteousness is what we do. It's what we do when we obey God, when we do what is right, when we do what is good, that is an act of righteousness. But the Bible says that there's actually another kind of righteousness, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, what he did in his life that is then given to us and is accounted to us when we believe in him. Do you you have that kind of righteousness? That's what we need. That's that's the kind of breastplate of righteousness that will protect us against the arrows of Satan when Satan attacks you. So so let me just help you understand this. In Romans chapter 3, we're going to go to three passages. I encourage you just to turn there. These These passages are so important for you to grasp. Like these are foundations. These are so important for you in your Christian life to understand that If you understand these passages, you will understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, you will be able to defend yourself against the attacks of Satan. When he comes and accuses you and says there's no way anyone or or that God could love anyone like you. You're a sinner. You can say, yes, I know I'm a sinner, but I have the gift of Christ's righteousness And it means I'm forever loved, accepted, and cared for by God. Romans 3, 21. This this is the passage immediately following where Paul tells us that none are righteous. No, not one. There's not one person who's righteous. But then listen to what he says. But now, verse 21, now, meaning there's a change. There's something different. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's a righteousness that doesn't come by you keeping the law of God, by doing the right things. Although he says the law and prophet bear witness to it. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's the righteousness of God. It's his righteousness, but it comes what? Through our effort? No, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You are given this righteousness by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. You are not righteous. You have not kept the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that can't be the basis for your standing with God. All have sinned and fall short of glory and are justified. That is, you're declared to be righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus you are given this righteousness as a gift that's how we stand made right right with god it's this same righteousness that paul says this is the second passage we'll look at really really quickly philippians 3 8. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, all of his righteousness. He tells about how he was a a Hebrew of Hebrews, how he was super religious, how he had done all of these things. And then he says this in verse number 8, Philippians 3, 8, but I count all of that loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. All of my personal righteousness, my acts of good that I thought were so good, I count them as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Again, when he talks about the loss of all things, he's talking primarily about his personal righteousness. I've given that up, he says, and I actually count them as dung. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, here's the key expression, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul's saying all of my good deeds, my entire life of being a Jew and being a Pharisee and trying to be the best person I could be, it's like refuse. It's it's like garbage. It's trash. I'm counting that as loss so that I can have Jesus Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. But what does he say? Not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In other words, when I believe in Christ, I'm given the gift of righteousness. God counts me as righteous, not based on my righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. So Paul's saying here, you can have a relationship with God that isn't based on the good things that you've done. God isn't constantly evaluating you and, and and assessing you based on your good deeds. No, he counts you as his child, as loved, as forgiven, as accepted because of the righteousness that Christ gives to you when you believe. You don't work for it. You just with faith, with an open hand, you receive the gift of righteousness, and he treats you as one who is righteous. Now one more passage, and that is Romans 10 verses one through four. Paul here is talking about his Jewish uh, relatives, really. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is that they might be saved. I want them to be converted. I want them to be saved by God. He says this, for I bear witness, uh, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They've got a desire to please God But it's not according to knowledge. They don't understand something. And this is what they don't understand. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying there in Romans 10 is, look, they're very zealous, just like I was. I was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. They are zealous to try to be righteous in the sight of God. Their whole life is trying to keep the commandments and be pleasing to God. They're trying to build their relationship with the Lord based on their righteousness. But they they are ignorant. They're ignorant of the fact that their righteousness would never please God because it's tainted by sin, but they're also ignorant of the fact that there's a righteousness that is given by God freely, and all they have to do is receive it by believing in Jesus Christ. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness because here's the key phrase, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Like christ puts that to an end that effort that work of trying to keep god's law in order to be counted righteous christ is the end of that because you receive this righteousness as a gift so this morning if our standing before god his love and forgiveness and acceptance of you is determined by your righteousness you're doomed because we're not righteous We can compare ourselves to each other, but it fails to compare ourselves to God's standard. And it also fails to really take a deep, introspective look at our own heart to see all the wickedness that's there. But there's a righteousness that is given to us freely. And so when Satan comes against us, when Satan accuses us, when Satan says, look at what you did. Look at that. God could not love you. You cannot be right with God. Look, you have fallen again. You have messed up again and again and again. If, if you're standing there trying to defend yourself based on your righteousness, you guess what? He's going to have you every time. But if you say, hey, I'm right with God. I'm loved by God. I'm accepted by God, not because of my righteousness, but because of this free gift of the righteousness of Christ, you are going to be victorious over the accusations of Satan. As we close this morning, let let me think about really quickly a few things that this does. If, If God gives us righteousness as a gift, how does that defend us from Satan's attack? Well, first, it delivers us from the lie that we must ever be working and never certain of our salvation. We must ever be working for our salvation, but never certain of our salvation. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you... Rest. I'll give you rest. When we come to Christ, when we believe the Gospel, we can rest. Paul was working his whole life trying to be the most zealous Jew who ever lived so that he could be righteous before God. But when you come to Christ, it puts an end to that. It's an end of the law for righteousness. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't, ever, I, I don't have to continue to keep working so that I can be accepted and loved by God. I can come and simply rest in Christ. It it delivers us from that. You see, Satan wants to keep you in that. He wants to keep you ever working for righteousness and never never certain of your salvation. Secondly, it delivers us from the lie that my standing with God is under a constant performance review. Maybe some of you have high-stress jobs where what you did yesterday doesn't matter today. What you did over the past 10 years can all be forgotten. If you make a single mistake tomorrow, you will be gone. You're under a constant performance review. And probably all of us are that way to a degree, but there are some jobs that are really that way, right? You are assessed every day or every year on what you've done. And if it's not good enough, it's not going to, you're not going to keep your job. That's the way some people approach their relationship with the Lord they're living as if god's evaluation with them is always sort of fluctuating does god love me today well what did i do yesterday how was i did i pray did i have my quiet time did, did i lead my children like i should did did i witness to those who are at work did i give Did i slip up did i mess up Did i did i look at something i shouldn't have looked at did did i struggle with unkind words did i have anger in my heart god is constantly evaluating it's always shifting if i've done well i can feel pretty good about myself but most of the time we don't because we all sin and we all struggle with sin and so we're constantly kind of living in that limbo of how does god feel about me but this gift of righteousness means that you are loved by god Right now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or what you did this morning or what you'll do later today. I'm not saying that it, that is unimportant, but God's evaluation of you does not shift based upon those things. His love for you does not change based upon those things. Your relationship with Him is not in jeopardy because of those things. You stand accepted, loved, and forgiven because of the gift of Christ's righteousness. So when Satan brings that accusation and says, remember what you did? Remember how you failed? Listen, you you can just remember that you are secure in Jesus Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ and you are able to defend yourself. Third, it delivers us from the lie that I I could not possibly get close to God after I've sinned. We've talked about this already, but man, this is such a tactic of Satan. He tempts you to sin, he entices you to sin, and then once you sin, then he comes and accuses you and says, look, stop! Don't. you're going to pray now? You're going to go teach that Sunday school class now? You, you're going to evangelize to your neighbor now after you did that? You might as well just quit And so often we do. I can't tell you the numbers of people that I've seen, even Christian leaders and pastors who've fallen into some sin and then they just throw up their hands and it's like, well, I guess I can never do anything for God again because of this. No, no. you're accepted in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are forgiven. Press forward. Don't believe that lie. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that we should draw near to the Lord with a heart. Full of assurance. You can draw near to God. Did you sin this morning? Were you unkind to your wife this morning on the way to church? Did did you do something yesterday that you're ashamed of? That you're carrying some guilt around? Did you do something last year? Did you do something when you were a teenager that you're carrying some guilt for? Listen, don't let that keep you from serving the Lord. Press forward. You're accepted, loved, and forgiven because of Christ, not because of you. We have confidence to draw near. Finally, it delivers us from the lie that says my past sins will forever define me. Some of you think that way. Some of you feel like I'm going to always carry that with me for the rest of my life. What what I've done can never be undone or forgotten. It really continues to define me. I will never be able to live it down. I will forever be viewed by my spouse or by my family or by my community as the person who did this and fill in the blank. You might be a husband who was unfaithful or who's looked at pornography. You think there's no way I can ever live that down. You carry guilt with you. Maybe some people, the issue of divorce in, in your past. And you feel like I'm going to forever hold that scarlet letter. You, you still struggle with guilt because maybe you, you didn't remain sexually pure before marriage and that continues to haunt you or you weren't, maybe you weren't the perfect parent and now you have guilt about how your children have turned out. You see the way Satan can play on, on your mind with those things and, and he can bring them to you and he can accuse you again and again and some of you have been carrying those things for years You need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You need to receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. Your standing before God is not based on any of those things. It's based on Christ. And you can walk in liberty. You can walk in freedom. And you can put those things behind you. God, the Bible says, has forgotten them. He's buried them in the depths of the ocean. And He views you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. You've been cleansed from your sin. You need to allow those things to fade into your past. And to serve the Lord faithfully now. This morning, I want to invite you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Listen, some of you need to stop taking these mortal wounds to the chest. You're just standing there. You're an open target for Satan. And he's drawing back and firing arrow after arrow into your vital organs because you are not secure in the righteousness of Christ. You, you've continued somehow to think that this is, that your relationship with God is somehow based on, on your actions. You need to stop allowing Satan to strike your heart with mortal wounds Put on the righteousness of Christ and move forward in the battle. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We're so grateful for the gift of your righteousness. God, we know that there's not one of us that could be here right now serving you, worshiping you, living for you. There's not one of us. There's none righteous. No, not one. Lord, I pray that every believer here this morning would be confident that they have the righteousness of Christ that they would be secure, that they would be able to withstand the attacks of Satan because they are standing and clothed in your righteousness. Oh Lord, help us be able to move on from past sins. Help us to to not feel like we're constantly under a performance review by you. Help us to know the love that you have for us, even, even in our sins. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.